Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Brian Clune, author of California's Haunted Route 66, published last month by the History Press. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Brian, welcome back to Crime Capsule. We are so delighted to have you. Happy to be back. Where we left off last week, you were saying that visitors who are interested in California's Haunted Route 66 can still take tours and visit these places and see uh, these spirits, these presences, these entities for themselves and form their own judgments, weren't you? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Before we get back into the cases themselves, I wanted to ask you about your methods as a researcher. Now, you've been to these places, uh, sometimes on multiple occasions, and studied them extensively, interviewed people on site, and your work as an investigator in this context, it relies on a number of different techniques, doesn't it? Including instruments and personal approaches. So tell us about your methods when you go to a site and you start to research it. So there are two different aspects here. Um, One, when I'm doing an actual paranormal investigation, uh, it's completely different than if I am doing um, historical research for the book. Uh, I'm looking for two different things for those two different reasons. Sure. So when I'm doing a paranormal investigation, most people will watch the TV shows and they will see, you know, these just reams of equipment, mm. REM pods and, you know, uh, spirit boxes and, and all of this different stuff. And my team basically has all of that. We probably have a good, I would say, eight to $12,000 worth of equipment. And it all sits at home now. Really? Basically, all we do is we will take our digital recorders, digital cameras, a ambient temperature thermometer. Because mm-hmm. uh, the, the lasers, all that does is take a temperature of whatever the laser hits. And we want to know what the temperature is in the room itself, and we will take an EMF meter. Now, the EMF meter is basically not to tell if there is a ghost there, Mm -hmm. because that's like, what? It's to see if there is a high EMF in a location. Uh, EMF is known to cause, well, it can cause paranoia, hallucinations, um, and things like that. So if we're we're in a home case, and uh, somebody's saying, oh, well, we keep seeing this over here, and we find uh, enough EMF to warrant, uh, you know, possible medical, we've, we're pretty sure that's most likely what it is. Because like I said, uh, natural causes are more prevalent than paranormal causes. And that makes sense. If you have a dynamic or an environment which is known to produce sensations that go above and beyond normal perception, well, then of course you might be creating the very thing that you went there to see. Right. Yeah, and one of the things that I always got a kick out of is the television shows state that uh, if there's a ghost presence, you're you're going to have higher EMF, when it would actually work the exact opposite, because a spirit to be able to manifest or to be able to, uh, say, speak audibly or something like that, 
they need to draw energy into themselves to be able to manifest what they're doing, which would actually pull the energy out of the environment rather than put it back into the environment, if that makes sense. I'm not an expert, but I'll take your word <laughs> for it. <laughs> I, I, I know a lot of people that would dispute me on that, but uh, physics state that that's the way it would work. So we, we just found that when you rely on too much equipment, you stop using your most important equipment, which is your senses and your brain. So we've reduced it to where we're not relying just on, on our equipment. We're also relying on our own senses. Now, when I go to do a research for a book, mm. uh, I'll take uh, some equipment with me just you know to do a preliminary. Um, and uh, my recorders are to uh, interview people. And I have had some ghost activity on my recorders as I was interviewing people. So that's always kind of exciting. Mm. And then the, the cameras, uh, I use my uh, SLR mainly, which is horrible to try and do uh, investigations with. It's great to, to, you know, to do photos for the book. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll capture something that's a little odd, although I'm not big on spirit photography, shall we say. Yeah, there's a lot of um, lint flying around in the atmosphere these days, especially yes, where sp- spirits are known to uh, or supposedly known to collect. Yeah. Well, let's jump back in the car. Don't get me started on orbs. No, we're not going to do the orbs. We're not going to do the orbs. Uh, let's jump back in the car and let's drive on down to uh, some of the next stops in your book. I, I do warn you that I have put on my skeptic hat a little bit more snugly for uh, these next couple of cases. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions um, uh, along those lines. So be be ready. So Oro Grande, you write very charmingly that, quote, what it lacks in size, it more than makes up for in spirit. So first of all, writer to writer, well done. Applause all around. <laughs> uh, why do you say that? Well, a couple reasons. One, there there seems to be a consensus with the people who live there that there is a, a good amount of paranormal activity. So part of that statement, as far as spirit, goes towards that. Hmm. The other, however, go, goes to the people themselves. There is not much left of Oro Grande, and the people who live there need to have a lot of spirit just to, to remain within the town. They love the town. They love being there. Um, and it cannot be easy for them. So part of that was also the spirit of the people who live there. You write that it's kind of like the town that almost was. It's the town that uh, had a promising beginning, but then it was bypassed by the interstate and traffic to Vegas, and it sort of, it almost had a shot when it was first getting started a century or so ago, and then and then it missed its moment, or it just kind of, all the opportunities passed it by. That happened with almost every uh, one of the locations between Needles and San Bernardino. Hmm. The original Route 66 from basically Chicago all the way through, followed uh, the railroad tracks. And the reason for that had to do with the railroads had already surveyed. Uh, you do not want to take uh, a train up and down you know, steep hills. Mm-hmm. So the road followed that knowing that it was already the easiest and less perilous route. Mm-hmm. Now, during the time that Route 66 was in California, it was a very uh, windy road. So from Needles, it went northwest and then went back southwest, then mm-hmm. went west and went back up north. So it kind of went you know, it, it just all over the place. Yep. And if any of our listeners out there want to jump on Google Maps or Apple Maps and sort of trace Route 66 in Southern California while we're talking. Uh, we're, that's fine. We're not going to stop anybody from actually seeing where, where you're talking about here. It is a convoluted route. It is. Yeah. So when Interstate 40 came through, it basically followed where Route 66 went from uh, Oklahoma 
all the way to Bakersfield. For Bakersfield mm -hmm. is where you pick up uh, the Route 15, which then follows Route 66 down into San Bernardino. And from there, you have the 210 or the 10, which then follows the rest of Route 66. Hmm. But from the Cajon Pass, just before you descend down into San Bernardino, and I'm talking the city of San Bernardino, not the county, because the county of San Bernardino actually goes from the California border all the way to the Los Angeles border. It's the largest county in the country. It went a straight shot, so it bypassed all of these little towns. Right. Uh, and one of them was Oro Grande. Now, Oro Grande, before uh, Highway 40 came through, was one of the main routes to get to Las Vegas. And when it was, uh, you had movie stars and uh, all sorts of high-profile uh, celebrities coming through on their way to Vegas, and a lot of them would actually stop as kind of a halfway point almost in Oro Grande. When Route 40 uh, was built and then the extension of Route 15 to Vegas, it all stopped. Uh, there was really no reason for anybody to drive by Oro Grande. Um, so the tourists just stopped coming. Right. The only thing that has kept Oro Grande alive is the uh, cement factory that's there. Right. You mentioned in your book that it had a somewhat auspicious start with gold. And then when the gold ran out, they went to silver. And then when the silver ran out, they went to limestone, which became really kind of the the foundation for the, the remainder of the economy. And what's interesting is that... It still is. And still is. And what's interesting about that is that there that means there were successive waves of miners and factory workers and so forth who populated the town during each of those sort of instances of uh, mineral extraction. Now, your claim is that it's one of the most haunted towns in the Mojave Desert precisely because there are so many unmarked graves, these anonymous factory workers and miners whose names we'll, we'll never know. And, and your claim, which is kind of interesting, is that ghosts don't like to be unrecognized, that they, uh, they're not fond of, of sort of being buried hastily or, or sort of, you know, without the proper trappings of ceremony and, and so forth. Uh, is, that, is that based on personal experience with them or where do you, where's the governing factor for that claim? So it's a little bit of both. Um, I was one of those who always thought, why would anybody want to go and investigate a cemetery? Because somebody is not going to be hanging around where their body is. They're going to be wanting to hang around where they felt more comfortable, their home or a place that they loved. And then my team and I, we were at the Pleasanton Pioneer Cemetery up in Pleasanton, California. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, will, I won't go into the whole story of why we were there. And when we got back to our hotel, I started listening to my recorder and I'm like, wow, it was the first time I'd ever actually investigated a cemetery. Mm. I had so many different EVPs that it just, it shocked me. You may need to explain what that is. Okay. An EVP, electronic voice phenomenon, uh, is a voice captured on a recorder that you cannot hear at the time that it is happening, but you can hear it when you play back your recording. One of, one of the interesting ones, uh, myself, my buddy Ash and his wife Laurel were standing outside of a very small crypt, mm. and we had introduced ourselves. Basically, you know, I just said, hi, I'm Ryan. Ash said, hi, I'm Ash. Laurel said the same thing. And right after that, a female voice, you just hear it go, hi. And Laurel was the only female there, and it was not her. Mm. There was another one that was I found really interesting. A buddy of ours, uh, Thomas Durant, who always claimed to be a psychic, who I was like, yeah, sure you are, Tom. We're walking through this one section of the cemetery, and you hear Tom say, wow, I just had this tremendous urge to speak French. <laughs> and right after he says that, we get a woman in a hushed whisper speaking French. How interesting. We were in the French section of the cemetery. Do you still have these recordings? I do. Hmm. I try and keep all of my recordings. Yeah. Uh, we don't put anything out unless it is a class A, which is the the best recording you can get. Um, 
Class Bs will keep if somebody wants to hear them. Class Cs, those are just for us uh, because they can never be used as evidence. They're just so bad. Uh, but yeah, I still have all of the recordings. As a matter of fact, I think uh, they're up on one of our uh, YouTube. Um, I'll have to figure out which one though. Let's return to Oro Grande for a moment because you you do write about um, a particular spot which was of interest. Uh, you write that there is kind of a town caretaker, a gentleman named Joe, um, who will show you around and kind of, you know, take you through, show you the ropes, that sort of thing. And that he has this room in his house. And you kind of make a, an example out of <laughs> this room because Joe makes an example out of this room. It's a room where absolutely no one will stay, according to your account. And I'd like you to tell us about this particular room in, in Joe's house. But I'd also like to ask you, you know, we have to proceed by the best known methods available to us, which include direct engagement, falsification, you know, <laughs> verification. Uh, did you stay in the room? I did not, but I would. One of the things that since it, Joe had called us there as uh, investigators. Now, the way I look at my books are they're for entertainment. Hmm. Okay. They're not a paranormal textbook. They're, you know, not meant to teach people how to be investigators. They're for people to read for fun. I, I like to joke about the fact that I trick people into learning about history by writing about ghosts. And one of the things that I try to do is whether Joe, with what he was telling me, if it was true or not, Joe believed it was. So I put it in there. You, you'll notice that in any of my writing, I never make absolute determinations unless I know for a fact from my own experience. Now, I had heard from one other person in town about Joe's room because I, I made a point of asking. And uh, they went, uh, absolutely, she goes, uh, I will never stay in that room. I did once, I will never do it again. Me, personally, I would be more than happy to, uh, to stay there. Unfortunately, Joe has since moved. He went from Oro Grande into Victorville, which is about seven, eight miles away, so he no longer owns the house. Sure. But yeah, I would have loved to. Yeah, it's it's one of those where you know it's catnip, right, to an investigator. It's 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 becomes the well. Of course, that's where we're going to stay if we're really going to you know check this out to be sure. And suffice to say, I think our our listeners and I know I will absolutely await your your the results of that investigation when next time you're down and. Oro Grande. Now, pulling Skeptic Hat off for one quick second, I, I, I do have to ask about Shelley's shop because <laughs> I mean, Shelley's shop was was special for a number of reasons, and I'm just going to name the reasons right now: spectral animals, and in particular, ghost cats. Now, I'm a cat owner, and and picking up a cat if it does not want to be held is hard enough, but this takes it to an entirely it really new does. level. What is going on at Shelly's shop? So, yeah, Shelly, um, she was another one that I, I was really uh, trying hard not to laugh at her. Joe had told me, you've got to go down and talk to Shelly's, uh, or Shelly, because Shelly's around the corner, is definitely haunted, he was telling me that uh, him and Shelly are partners. He's kind of a silent partner. Hmm. Uh, but that a lot of times he has to open up and they will find things stacked up uh, that were you know, neatly put away the night before. He said he's opened up and he's actually uh, seen cats and a dog or two every once in a while. Hmm. He said the cat actually came up to him one time and then disappeared. Uh, but he's actually seen them, you know, darting here and there and, uh, I said, sure, you know, I'd be more than happy to talk to Shelly. And, and I went there, and she's all, you know, I don't know why Joe keeps telling people that. She goes, yeah, I've seen these dogs, but, that, you know, that doesn't mean the place is haunted. And I'm like, um, <laughs> Shelly, if, if you saw a transparent dog, yeah, that means that you're being haunted by a ghost dog. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like, <laughs> you Shelly, know? you were so close. You were so close, Shelly. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, dear. I, I really have to wonder about you know, some of the people that, are, that tell me these things. It's like, okay, you're admitting that you saw a ghost while telling me that there's no ghosts here. Wait, 
what? <laughs> well, I know where I'm going when I'm going to Oro Grande because, uh, you know, we, the, the, the challenge is, is irresistible. Now, here's the thing, Brian. The, the presence of the ghost animals actually raises a very good question, which takes us around to a couple of the other towns in your book. And it's the question of non-human spirits, non-biological entities, right? And what I'm really talking about is trains. Uh, you write that in several of your towns, you have occurrences like phantom train whistles and the sounds of carriages and, and train cars sort of running through on the abandoned track, uh, even though, of course, there are no actual trains around for miles. You grant a possibility that the Doppler effect might be in play here. But here's my my skeptic's hat is back on again, because it seemed awfully convenient to me as I was reading your informant's uh, sort of testimony that, you know, by the time you would try to capture it on audio or video, oh, well, you know, it's gone, right? It just happened so fast I couldn't reach for my recorder in time. And that seemed to me just a little too neat and tidy. Where do you stand on the on the phantom trains? If I remember right, the only one that I remember writing about would have been at the Goff Cemetery. Uh, there might have been another one, but I can't picture where it would be. I I do know I wrote about uh, a train at Oro Grande, but uh, that was an actual train. Mm-hmm. There are so many trains that go through Oro Grande, you can't help but spot one like every five minutes. Now, the one at uh, Goffs, um, I don't know whether anybody has uh, managed to uh, catch any audio of it, um, and I do not have any legitimate scientific theories regarding it. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. own belief would probably stem from place memory, whether it was, say, a engineer of the train whose memory of going through there mm-hmm. was strong enough to leave what would be called a residual mm-hmm. uh, haunting, mm-hmm. or um, whether it's the people themselves who know the story, who are producing the affect themselves i really couldn't tell you <laughs> sure. but as far as the uh, being able to reach for a recorder or something like that from what i understand the it's uh, pronounced enough and long enough where somebody could if uh, if they could hear it well now our listeners have another assignment now we can't go to california much less southern california without talking about stage and screen and you devote Uh, several chapters to these matters, and a chapter in particular to the Pasadena Playhouse, uh, which seems to be a very important location for some of your paranormal pranksters. What's interesting is that the vast majority of the entities at the Playhouse, they seem to be pretty harmless. I mean, they seem to be, for the most part, kind of practical Jokers, um, but who who were these folks who are said to still be around in in Pasadena? Well, one of them is the owner, and you'll have to pardon me. I cannot, for the life of me, bring his name to memory. Is that Gilmore Brown? Gilmore or? Brown. Thank you, That's Gilmore him. Brown. Yep. And the other is none other than the original Superman, uh, George Reeves, mm. and that was sort of his second home um, as he was growing up. He he always wanted to be a boxer. His mother did not want him to be a boxer. So he actually went into acting. And there's a whole big thing with Reeves. I actually uh, wrote a whole chapter on him in a, uh, one of my books, Hollywood Obscura, mm-hmm. about you know his, his possible death and whether it was suicide or murder or accident. But when he passed away, um, he was not exactly in the best of moods. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be taken as a serious actor, but was always uh, typecast as Superman. And it, and it used to drive him up a wall. The, the Superman character was actually his best and worst role. It gave him a mm-hmm. lot of money and recognition, but it also kept him from being a serious movie star. Right, from doing what he really wanted to do, of course. Yeah. Right. But he had always loved performing at the Pasadena Playhouse. Uh, It was one of his 
favorite places to, to perform. Even during his time as a Superman, he would go back and do plays. If there was no parts for him, he would go in and he would actually be a stage extra hmm. because he just loved it so much. And he loved the people hmm. that, that ran the stage. Um, he was very fond of Gilmore Brown, but he was also a jokester and would play jokes on people incessantly, none of which were harmful or anything like that. But, you know, if you get jokes played on you constantly, you're going to start getting perturbed. <laughs> and he apparently yeah. just loved it to play jokes on people. So that that's he's one of the main people there. And then Gilmore Brown is the other main spirit. And Gilmore was also known as a prankster. So now you have two spirits, both like to play jokes on people, who are supposedly both still there playing jokes on everybody there. That's got to be annoying. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like to think that you roll with the punches if you're uh, if you're an actor, and it's the, the whole improv thing of yes and, right? Um, you you yeah. never refuse the bit. You always take the bit and just, and just carry it forward. Um, now, you do mention this interesting detail of a diary that one of the floor managers keeps of George Reeves' posthumous activity. What What's going on with this diary? And did you actually get to see it yourself? I did not. Unfortunately, she is on hiatus right now. Uh, I'm not really sure what that means. But, a little um, convenient there, Brian. A little yeah. convenient. <laughs> but I was told by the current manager that, yes, the woman has written a diary. And it's not just about Reeves. It's about all of the different activity that has taken place over there. And I myself have investigated the Pasadena Playhouse twice mm -hmm. um, and have had a couple odd things happen. The strangest one was in Brown's meeting room. I was there with, I think it was my buddy Jerry, and we were sitting there doing an EVP session trying to see if we could contact Brown. And as we were sitting there, the chair at the head of the table decided to just go ahead and slide backwards. Hmm. So That's kind of interesting. Yeah, that was the most profound thing that has happened there. But uh, again, whether the diary actually exists or not, I write for entertainment. And uh, I often say I will back my history 100%. My ghost stories, not so much. Yeah, and, and my skeptic's hat. Uh, really kind of started to to tickle my scalp, uh, you know, when I realized that, uh, you know, these these people. This is a this is a dramatic company. This is a you know this is a working theater, and I have actors in my family. These people are paid to lie for a living, you know. So how seriously <laughs> can we take them? Um, but you know, I, I'll I'll hear it from you, Brian. I'll, I'm willing to hear of something unusual from you, but but from them, I I, I want to go past secondhand here. So there's something to keep in mind, though. Um, it is very rare that you have a theater, especially an old theater, that does not claim to have some sort of paranormal activity involved. That's true. That's very true. And many of our guests uh, in this series who have written about haunted spaces, uh, we very definitely, Darren Edwards, our first guest in the paranormal series, uh, he has a chapter in his book about a haunted theater in southern Utah. So that's a fair point and I imagine well worth pursuing Let's get back in the car and let's actually head just a little further west uh, to a spot that you say is very well known for paranormal activity. And of course, I'm talking about the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. There are some incredibly sad stories that are associated with this site, aren't there? There are. You have to remember that at the time the cemetery was founded, there was a lot of, I say, racism involved in Hollywood, uh, which yeah. is why the cemetery itself was segregated. You had one section of it that was for Christians and mm -hmm. another section that was strictly for the Jewish population. Mm -hmm. And one of the only reasons that they, they even allowed the, uh, to have a Jewish cemetery there included in Hollywood Forever was because most of Hollywood was being run by Jewish men and women. The, the woman who was in Gone with the Wind, who played uh, Mammy, she wanted to be buried there. They, they would never allow her. Right, Hattie McDaniel. Yeah, of course. 
Ed McDaniel, yeah, they wouldn't even allow her to be there. They finally did put up a uh, plaque for her at the cemetery, so uh, you know, I was, I was happy to hear that. But then the one guy who ended up buying the cemetery and embezzling all of the funds and uh, you know buying a yacht supposedly to take uh, the ashes of, of the movie stars you know out to sea, he basically just used it to cheat on his wife. They found a bunch of urns in his office after he passed away that uh, had never been uh, taken out uh, and to have the ashes spread. And it finally came to a head when part of the crematorium started to fall down on Mama Cass as she was being cremated. Mm. And that's when they found out about all the embezzlement and everything else. You know, that's just sad in and of itself. You know, as I read your account, it was uh, clear just how much historical documentation you did actually have to sift through in order to give backstories to these residents. Uh, Mama Cass being one, you have, of course, Virginia Rappi, you have Clifton Webb. And it, it really struck me, Brian, because there was a stark contrast to how, how much there was that we knew about these glitterati, literati, uh, sort of famous folks from the early part of the last century. Contrast to how many nameless, forgotten miners and rail town folk were populating the earlier chapters of your book, people whose lives had no less dignity, but we just don't, don't know anything about them. Now, I'm curious, the question I have for you is... If you don't mind, just... If, if, yeah, go ahead, by all means. Um, one of the things that I have found recently, um, I am working on a true crime book for a History Press right now. Murder and Mayhem Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and this, this goes to what you were just saying about how much we know about the stars and how little we know about the miners. One of the things that caught my attention as I was doing research on the, the different murders that I'm researching for uh, Murder and Mayhem Hollywood was how much information I can find on the serial killers and the murderers and how little I can find on the victims. On the victims, right. And it, it is really sad. I mean, I am racking my brain trying to find as much as I can on the victims because I'd rather bring them forward and, and let people know about them rather than the murderers because we already know who the murderers are and why. Right. And you don't want to sensationalize or glorify either. Exactly. Well, I guess what I wanted to ask you in that context is, and this is, this is a tricky question, not in terms of sort of a gotcha moment. It's tricky because I don't exactly know how to frame it, but I'm going to try. I'm curious whether the additional information about a supposed ghost's backstory makes a material difference in the way that you approach a site. And what I mean by that is, does the fact that we know more about the wrongful death, in fact, the murder of Virginia Rappi, than we know about those nameless ghosts in Oro Grande, does that change your approach as a researcher or an investigator? Is there a, is there a difference there? There is a huge difference. One of the things that drives me crazy, uh, as you might be able to tell, I'm not big on ghost reality TV. Hmm. And one of the reasons for that is they go to a location and they do an EVP session and it's, is there somebody here? Why are you still here? Did you die here? What is your name? What, blah, blah, you know, and right, right. if the ghosts are there, they've got to be sitting around going, God, I'm getting tired of answering this, right? And, <laughs> yeah, you guys again. <laughs> yeah. At, at which point they'd be going, oh, you know what? Just shut up. I'm going away. But if you go into a location and you know about the people that lived there, if you know about the history of the location, if you know about what happened at the location, you can ask intelligent questions. You know, you don't have to know or you don't have to ask if so-and-so was there because you'll already know that that person was there. Mm -hmm. And if you know that person was there and you know the story of that person, you might be able to get information out of the spirit that you wouldn't be able to get by just saying, who is this? Why are you here? You already know why they're still there. So yeah, it, it, it makes a huge difference if you know the what, why, where, and when of a location rather than just the where. So the last 
instance that I want to ask you about with respect to this cemetery, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, is about Rudolf Valentino, of course, exceptionally internationally famous silent film star of the the very early 1900s. And this is about the firmest that my skeptic's hat is going to be uh, tightened around around my brow this hour. Now, I'm going to ask you, first of all, to tell us about the story of Rudolph's arrival in uh, the cemetery. Uh, and then I'll have a question for you. Uh, so just tell us, tell us kind of how he came to arrive there and about his suitors, really, his, his paramours, because that's, that's the crux of this, isn't it? So how he arrived there, there's a lot of speculation on, on what he actually died from. Um, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, the official was peritonitis, if I'm remembering it correctly. But as, I, th- I think what you really wanted to get at is uh, his suitors, right? Go okay. on. So Rudolf Valentino was known as the penultimate ladies' man. He was the Latin lover. He was every, every woman's dream at the time. Um, and most people don't realize that Rudolf Valentino was gay. Mm. And the whole thing was an act for him. He was very good at it, mm. but he preferred the company of men. Mm -hmm. And one of the men that he was most fond of, shall we say, was um, a man by the name of Ramon Navarro. And Valentino took Navarro under his wing and basically taught him how to be Valentino, I guess is the best way to say it. And it was never so Navarro could uh, replace him it was basically so he could be an aide to him, so they could work together. And, and from what I understand from reading one of the diaries, uh, he was hoping that they could both at some point come out of the shadows. Sure. Unfortunately, it was not meant to be until decades later. Sure, sure. You know, I, and I was actually asked by a, uh, one of my editors, are you just making this up? And I, I actually said, no, I'm not. Uh, and I, I, it came from, a diary of mm-hmm. Mr. Navarro, uh, which I had seen. So, you know, it, it does come from legitimate sources. You write that uh, Dietra has a sort of special claim to fame with respect to the cemetery, which is that every year on the anniversary of Valentino's death, after her own death, she began to appear. Now, she would go and she would sort of lay flowers at his grave before she died because of how um, how fond of him she was. Um, but that after she passed away in, I believe it was the 1970s, every year on, I looked it up, uh, August 23rd was the day that Valentino died. Um, every year on August 23rd, there is a lady in a black dress who is seen at the gravesite of uh, Rudolph Valentino laying a flower, and then she disappears. Um, have, I, have I got that right? Yeah. Now, uh, Ms. Flame actually met Valentino when she was 14 years old, mm-hmm. and they thought that she might be dying, but it turns out that she did survive, obviously, mm-hmm. and that uh, her mother had asked Mr. Valentino to go to her bedside and try and comfort her when she was in the hospital. And one of the things that they had talked about was that Valentino didn't want to be alone after he died. Mm. And so Valentino would keep going to the hospital to visit Ms. Flame, and they became friends. Now, when Valentino did finally pass away, Flame then kept her promise by, te- you know, because she had told Valentino that I will make sure that you are never alone. Mm. So over the years, she would go every year and she would put a, a single red rose. Uh, she would go in you know, all black morning clothes. She did stop, however, after the fame of the lady in black started to draw a bunch of other women in black. To the cemetery. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And she, so she finally just said, "Okay, well, I, you know, I don't want to compete with them. I'm going to stop going. Mm-hmm. I know he's not alone because all of these other women were now going and leaving flowers at his grave. And then all of it started to slowly fade away as she stopped going, to the point where she then went back and started put the single red rose until she passed. 
And it is thought now that the reason she keeps going is because even after her death mm-hmm. is because she, she will not give up her promise to Valentino to always be there for him. So it's an act of devotion. Which is lovely, which is very sweet and gives me as many warm fuzzies as I could possibly hope for uh, when I read an account like this. But, you know, good scientific knowledge proceeds on two grounds, that it's falsifiable and repeatable, which is to say that any one of us could go to Valentino's plot on August 23rd of each year, which just happened about two months ago. Uh, and wait there and see if we see a lady in a black dress lay a flower and then dematerialize into uh, thin air. And what I was curious about, Brian, I'm, I'm not hostile, I'm just kind of curious, is there a crowd that waits there from sunup to sundown on August 23rd of each year to kind of, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's not, we could go, we could go, yeah, you and I, I could go. <laughs> I, I, I'd be more than happy to do that. The thing is, I don't think there is a vigil, although there should be. And part of the problem is Hollywood Forever Cemetery refuses to admit to any paranormal stuff whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They actually actively deter people from investigating and things like that. So whether they would allow it or not, I don't know. But because of the fact that the cemetery closes all of its mausoleums at dusk. Mm -hmm. We don't know whether she goes at dusk or not. Now, I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm just giving you, uh, (laughs) again, you will never hear me claim any of these to be absolute. Sure. Like I said, I write for entertainment. It's a great ghost story. It is. It is. But if somebody, if somebody asks, I mean, you have to, you have to present both sides. So does she come first thing in the morning before they open up or does she come after they close up? You know, we, we don't know. I don't think there was any set time ever mentioned. Fair enough. Uh, unfortunately, it is such a great ghost story, and it is so specific that it can be tested. Uh, exactly. And that is to its peril. That is to its yeah. peril, but to our to our joy. I could not agree with you more. We need to reach the end of the road, and the end of the road is at a very specific location, which is interesting because you write that there are actually two ends of the road when it comes to Haunted Route 66, maybe even three, depending on how uh, you tabulate them. You write that if the heyday of the Mother Road was in the 30s due to the Depression and people traveling west, seeking a better life and so forth, um, you write that the, the 1960s, when the interstate came through, as we were talking about, was in fact the kind of the beginning of the end for all of the settlements and communities along the way from Chicago all the way to Santa Monica <laughs> uh, to, right. to, the, to, the, to that area. You write that the Santa Monica Pier is not the geographic end of Route 66. It is the symbolic end of Route 66. Can you describe that particular distinction for us? Okay, so Route 66 at the western edge mm-hmm. uh, has three distinct ends. Okay. You, you have the official end of Route 66, which is the absolute terminus, and that is at Lincoln Boulevard and Olympic Boulevard. And there is actually a sign, a very small one, mm. that says end of Route 66. Now, that is the actual official terminus of Route 66. Mm. Now, there is the spiritual end, of Route 66, which is at the end of Santa Monica Boulevard and Ocean Avenue, where it meets the cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Beautiful. It it really is. Uh, Santa Monica Boulevard was not only Route 66, it was also classified as a Will Rogers Highway. And the Will Rogers Highway ended at Santa Monica Boulevard and Ocean. So there's actually a little plaque embedded in a a stone that says... uh, uh, Will Rogers Highway ends here. Then there's a visitor center just off to your left as you're looking at the ocean that says uh, end of Route 66. And then there is what is now classified as the symbolic end mm-hmm. of Route 66. And what I find so amusing about this is it has only been in existence since 2009. Um, it was originally thought to be the end during a movie called The Gumball Rally. Of course, classic. Which yeah. um, 
yeah, classic. And that, that's where the gumball rally ended. And everybody figured, okay, they had been driving down Route 66, so this must be the end of Route 66. It never was. Uh, and the reason being is no interstate or state highway can end at a dead end. They have to end at another highway. Mm-hmm. So it could never be either at Ocean or at the pier because it's not a highway. Mm. Then in 2009, one of the former presidents of the California Historic Route 66 Association was opening up a store on the Santa Monica Pier called Chicago to California Route 66 store. And he put up the sign that says, end of trail, Route 66. This was all in 2009. And since then, everybody thinks that this is the actual end of Route 66. (laughs) Folks will believe anything. All right. Hey, I have to admit, it is a great photo op, though. It is a great sign to take a photo at. I can only hope that your book is being sold at that particular store. Uh, I haven't checked. I did go down during my marketing portion, and he said, yeah, it sounds like something we'd want to sell, but I do have to go down and double check. Well, you do write that the pier itself is known for a little paranormal activity. It has some uh, fairly prominent ghosts, actually. You mentioned a young lady by the name of Norma Jean Baker, who some of us know uh, slightly better as Marilyn Monroe, who is alleged to visit the area from time to time. What is Miss Monroe doing on the Santa Monica Pier? So this actually came as a surprise to me to find out that uh, Marilyn Monroe was seen there. I had done a lot of research on Marilyn Monroe because I wrote a chapter about her in my Hollywood Obscura book. Mm. And I had never heard about Marilyn going down to the pier. Mm. So when I heard about it, I was like, okay, I, I can't believe this because I hadn't heard about it. So I delved back into all of my research, didn't really find a whole lot, and then started going back even further in, into her childhood that I really didn't dive into when I was doing the other book mm-hmm. and did find that, yeah, when uh, she had foster parents, that they would take her down to the Santa Monica Pier and that it was one of her places that she really didn't want anybody to know about because that is where she would go to just be Norma Jean again and stop being Marilyn Monroe. And one of her favorite places as she was growing up was always the Loaf Hippodrome, mm. which houses the uh, carousel. And I did find some, I don't, I don't want to say documentation, but some entries in her psychiatrist's notes that were released mm-hmm. that where she did talk about it. And I had apparently just sort of overlooked that part because it wasn't getting into my brain. So to find out that, yeah, okay, she, she was down there, it started to make a little bit more sense on, one, why she's there, and two, why it's difficult to see her because it is a place where she didn't want to be seen. Well, I have not seen the new uh, biopic yet, but if it does not include a sighting there at the very end of of the film, then we can count that as a definite oversight on the director's part, can't we? Uh, You know, just the last thing I wanted to observe was uh, last week we went all the way across the country with Allison Chase. We were in Brooklyn and we were uh, at Coney Island, of course. And I'm going to confess... This is not throwing any kind of shade on on Allison or on her book. In fact, quite the opposite. It's a marvelous piece of work. But I was a little disappointed that there were not more ghostly carnival riders uh, at Coney Island. She described a couple of other sites in the area that had some some entities and some presences, but none on the actual rides themselves. And I was so thankful, Brian, when I read your account. Uh, to read about the spectral merry-go-round and carousel uh, riders, the folks who are actually just still enjoying the attractions as you do when you go to the Santa Monica Pier, and you have righted that imbalance. You know, for for all of us of of our generation who grew up on a diet of something like Ray Bradbury's "Something Wicked This Way Comes," one of the great great novels, you know, of the era. You have done us a great service, so I am extremely grateful. I'm, I am glad I could help. You'll love the chapter on Disneyland in my uh, haunted Southern California then. Oh, that sounds, well, that's going to have to go right on the nightstand then. Brian, it has been a pleasure to have you uh, join us these last several weeks, and congratulations again on 
your book, if listeners want to find out more about your work, uh, where should they go? Go to my website, briancloon.com. And something that might be of interest to your listeners, I started a blog and I write under the name The Paratraveler. Mm -hmm. And I have a few blogs up now, so I'm working on a few more that are designed so people can have their own paranormal weekend without having to join a group, take a tour. I write about specific towns. I write about the places you can stay that are haunted, places you can eat that are haunted, things to do in town that are haunted. So you can basically do your own paranormal weekend. How to haunt the town. <laughs> exactly. To <laughs> exactly. So if, if that's something you guys might be interested in, please check out my blog. It's, it's naturally free of charge. And, uh, you might find something interesting. Well, this has been a total joy. Thank you again. I hope your shift on duty uh, aboard the USS Iowa goes smoothly with no spooky shadows this evening. I hope there are spooky shadows. Okay, then. Well, I hope there are too, then. <laughs> as many as, uh, as those old sailors can throw at you. Brian, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was a definite pleasure for me as well. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Brian Clune, author of California's Haunted Route 66, newly published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop crime dash capsule. Join us next week for a conversation with Peter Zablocki, who tells us about one of the most famous hauntings or hoaxes in all of American history as our series on the paranormal continues. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen, offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.